Welcome back to the Keynote List Podcast. It is your co-host, Kathleen. We are launching a special episode to celebrate Black History Month. In Canada, February has been marked as Black History Month. So as a celebration of Black History Month, we will be discussing a few of the most influential Black athletes for both their skill and passion on the field, but also their courage to stand up to injustice and fight for civil rights. So let's dive in. 11-time NBA champion, 5-time NBA Most Valuable Player, 12-time NBA All-Star, 3-time All-NBA First Team, 8-time All-NBA Second Team. Can you guess? Here is a basketball player that I'm sure most of you have heard of, the Boston Celtics legend Bill Russell. We'll paint the scene with an account from Bill Russell himself. There was a full house in the Keel Auditorium on that night in December 1956. The ball went up and Bob Pitted of the Hawks and I jumped for it. I got it. Coon, go back to Africa, you baboon. Watch out, if you pet it, you'll get covered with chocolate. There was no doubt who the fans were yelling at. I was the only black athlete on either team, Russell remarked. Being a high profile athlete, Mr. Russell understood there was a forum and platform for him to use if he chose to do so, as he understood the choices he made can transform the future of so many that followed him, which is really powerful. As a side note, I know many of our athletes, myself as well, are powerlifters, and you know how important getting in the right headspace for a big lift or competition can be. And when something throws you off mentally, for example, you had a lot in your mind, girlfriend, family troubles, a bad breath call, for whatever reason. If you are not all there mentally, it can completely derail your workout or competition. And that applies to every sport and discipline. Now amplify that by stadiums chanting racial slurs, constant threats on yourself, family, and having your own home broken into and vandalized. These are what these athletes have to overcome daily and then get up and go and put in a performance day in and day out. It's sometimes easy to look back in time and think, yeah, must have been hard. But yeah, must have been hard, times are bad, but it really was something else. And you can't 100% emphasize unless you actually experienced it, what it was like to be constantly harassed and not viewed as human to many because of your color. Obama spoke on the courage of Bill Russell saying how at a time when teams were still traveling through cities that practiced Jim Crow laws, these were laws that related to segregation, Bill was someone who stood up and insisted on dignity and he was willing to speak out. Bill was a star in Boston and would still be denied food at some of the restaurants he tried to get a meal at simply because of his color. One of the great things about Russell was that he didn't wait until he was quote unquote safe or it was the convenient time to stand up for what was right. Russell did that in the midst of winning 11 championships. Let's discuss another example to illustrate this. In around June 1963, Medgar Evers, one of the country's leading civil rights activists, returned home from a meeting with NAACP lawyers. That night, he climbed out of his car at his Jackson, Mississippi home and took a shot in the back from a high-powered rifle. Not too long after, he was pronounced dead. This is the unfortunate risk that activists face for standing up for their civil rights. 
as these were regular occurrences and created a stronger atmosphere of fear for those that did not want to fight for for those that did not want to fight for civil liberties. Far away from the madness in Jackson, Bill Russell, who at the time recently had led the Celtics to their fifth straight NBA championship and had heard the news with the anger and built up emotions he had, he knew he had to go to Jackson, knew he had to do something, anything to keep alive Evers' fight for freedom. Russell connected with Charles Evers, which was Medgar's older brother, and they discussed opening a playground and having the first integrated race basketball camp in Mississippi. Take yourself back in time and let that sink in. What they were going to attempt to do. Evers knew he was asking a lot. He was asking Russell to risk his life to teach basketball to kids black and white in Jackson. It was totally segregated down there. If you were black, you couldn't drink out of the water fountains, couldn't use the restroom facilities, and couldn't even register to vote. And now... You want to open an integrated camp? That honestly would have been beyond insane at the time. Who would have been crazy enough to go through with that? Bill and Charles were. Especially as they were carrying the torch for Evers who was just murdered. Not surprising, but all the while still shocking. Bill Russell received death threats and he knew white segregationists like Brian Dilla Beckwith the man who murdered Medgar Evers would be watching him. Personally, I find it so sad that someone was receiving death threats for trying to teach a sport to black and white kids together. Such a simple gesture when you take it out of context of racism occurring at that time. A group of black leaders called the Deacons of Defense provided security for Russell. And at night, as Russell tried to sleep in a local motel, Sitting in a chair, Charles pointed a rifle towards the door as the last line of defense. It's hard to imagine how scary that would be, always having to keep an eye open for your life at all times. Have you ever been walking home late at night and sometimes get the jitters, or had those jumpy moments when you were a kid and were in the basement and got frightened because you thought you heard something? I know this is actually a terrible comparison, I apologize, but multiply that feeling by like a million and you might just come close to what it was like. This was the world Bill Russell and so many activists were trying to change. At the camp they did have a few white boys attend which they measured a huge success towards integration. Bill Russell was undoubtedly a basketball icon. His accolades as a player and coach speak for themselves but his actions towards civil rights speak volumes as he merged in rallies, participate in voter registration drives, and always stood up for what was right. Bill Russell's philosophy was simple. Never lose your sense of self-respect and always consider what might be bigger than yourself. Let's turn to track and field. Now I know everyone has heard the infamous story of Jesse Owens and the standoff with Hitler. Let's talk about two lesser known track stars to some people that both made a huge impact Tommy Smith and John Carlos. African-American athletes Tommy Smith and John Carlos became the center of a roiling controversy. These athletes came first and third in the 200 meter finals at the Olympics in Mexico. While standing on the podium, they carried out a protest, which we'll get into more detail in a second, so stick with me. 
It was only months after the assassination of Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and protests against the Vietnam War were also gaining steam. The 1968 U.S. Olympic team was considered one of the greatest ever assembled to represent the U.S. in the Olympics. They won, I think it was 28 medals and set eight world records at the games in Mexico City and had some of the fastest runners in the world like Tommy Smith and John Carlos which both made history when they accepted their medals and then raised their fists during the playing of the U.S. National Anthem in a protest which was full of symbolism. This act goes a little deeper as the athletes almost didn't even show up for the Olympics. See, Black members of the team were actually planning to boycott the meet in protest of the racial treatment. Now, the story of the silent protest and the boycott that almost was starts with the Olympic Project for Human Rights buttons that all three medal winners wore that day, including the Australian who came second. The OPHR was founded in 67 by an educator and former star athlete, Dr. Harry Edwards, and it was a group of prominent athletes that really threatened to put aside the success of their own American Olympic team by ditching the games. If there was one way to get attention, not sending your best athletes to an international competition might be a way to do it. The aim was obviously to protest the racism in sports that's really been brushed under the rug for far, far too long. In the mid 20th century, sports appeared to be a leading example of improved racial equality and really focus on the word appeared to be a leading example of equality in the United States because you had black athletes like football player Kenny Washington, and baseball player Jackie Robinson, who broke racial barriers by joining professional leagues in, six, in 46 and 47, which until that point had been whites only. College and professional sports teams gradually integrated from there. So you basically had the media promoting these athletes as a token or symbol that racial democracy existed in the United States. And so it was a factor that was used to dismiss the question of institutionalized racism, which is honestly just sad. You really didn't have to look too far to see how off this was. And you really got to be in another headspace to believe that because of a few prolific athletes, everything was all sunshine and rainbows. The Civil Rights Act ended legal segregation in 1964, but Black Americans continued to face institutionalized racism and police brutality. Integration simply wasn't successful in improving Black people's lives, and you needed to force further change. Years of frustration ultimately erupted in widespread violent riots. I think the further we get away from it, we understand the influence of the riots. Side note, thinking back to all the riots that erupted over the past summer in 2020 in the States and Canada, it really connects the deeply rooted struggles people of color have faced. Obviously, the improvements have been monumental. There's still work to be put in. Now back to our story. So with the riots that happened in a lot of the urban cities across America, Black people still lived in unfathomable socioeconomic conditions in the cities, which is just as much a problem as the Jim Crow laws related to segregation at the time. So what was one of the ways they're going to draw attention? With the 1960 Olympics coming up, Black athletes saw an opportunity to push for change. The idea of a Black Olympic boycott had been around since 59, and the Black Power Conference basically argued that you should use any means possible to force the government to pay attention to institutionalized racism. But think of how hard this would be if you were one of these athletes. 
you basically see all this shit happen, see all the shit that happens to you, your family, and your colleagues, and you want to change, you want to change, and you want to be a part of that change. And on the other hand, you have been training for years, and you would hate to miss one of the biggest competitions stages of your career. Basically, a chance to compete in front of the world. It's one hell of a decision and a heavy one to make. Thinking back to how heavy a decision this is for these athletes, would you have done it if you were in their shoes? Just take a sec to think about that. The OPHR had five key demands, among them being to disinvite South Africa and Rhodesia, which were two countries practicing apartheid, from competing in the Games. They also wanted the removal of openly racist International Olympic Committee President Avery Brundage, and they wanted to hire black coaches to the U.S. teams. As you can guess, the potential boycott became a hot topic in the news and obviously a big debate among athletes. Everyone wanted to know if these top stars were going to represent the country. It's almost a slap in the face of these athletes. We will get treated like complete garbage, but you value our talents enough to let us win you some medals. I see how it is. In the months leading up to the games in Mexico City, the OPHR kept num members of the press guessing whether they would attend or not, but ultimately it came down to a vote. The decision was made that if there was a unified agreement or the majority of black athletes would participate, the boycott would be called off. Because some of these athletes who would agree to boycott, like Tommy Smith, actions could have gone in vain, they in vain, likely because another black athlete simply would have taken their place, they agreed it was best to have the athletes compete. And as you could have guessed, most of the OPHR's demands remained unmet. So although the athletes headed to Mexico City anyways, some had plans to make their own demonstration if and when the opportunity arose, which it did on October 16th. Following the men's 200 meter final, OPHR members Tommy Smith and John Carlos won gold and bronze, while Smith also set a new world record. After the race, they solemnly approached the medal stands, shoeless, wearing black socks, and accepted their medals. And just as the U.S. National Anthem began to play, they did this. For the full duration of the anthem, Smith and Carlos bowed their heads and each raised a black gloved fist in the air to protest the racial injustice in their home country and show solidarity with those fighting for equality. The fists are not the only symbolic gesture in this image. As Tommy Smith explained, the right glove signified the power within the black community. The left glove signified black unity. The scarf that was worn around his neck signified blackness. John Carlos and me wore black socks without shoes to also signify our poverty. Additionally, John Carlos wore his jacket unzipped, a violation of Olympic etiquette, to show solidarity with working class Americans. He also wore black beads to honor victims of lynching. And finally, all three medal winners, including silver medalist Peter Norman of Australia, wore buttons reading Olympic Project for Human Rights. There were some boos in the stadium that night. And you can imagine the controversy that stirred with all the eyes on them at the moment. This was the ultimate manifestation of the work of Harry Edwards and the OPHR to intersect outspoken political activism within the sport. And it ended, it did end Smith and Carlos Olympics. 
the International Compete Committee suspended them, their credentials were taken away, and they were told they could not stay in Mexico. They were dropped from the U.S. Olympic team and given 48 hours to leave Mexico. The other thing we have to think about is when we look back in time and think of individuals like Tommy Smith and John Carlos that made a stand, we think of them as heroes, but sometimes we fail to realize the ramifications they would have faced at the time. And honestly, how hard it would be to be shunned by the whole Olympic committee and your country, which you have to fly back to, where you're trying to incite positive change. Ultimately, these athletes felt they are human before being an athlete and they want equality everywhere, not just within the arena. Tommy Smith and John Carlos were saying, black athletes don't have it made in American society and we want all black citizens to have the rights they deserve. Another note, even the Australian athlete who wore the badge faced backlash when he returned to his country, which ultimately ended his running career as well. Fast forward back to more recent times, I believe Colin Kaepernick is representing a voice in the black community, which is similar to that of what Carlos and Smith were saying. When he still looked at percentages of black individuals being sentenced to longer jail sentences for the same crimes as white individuals in the states, police brutality, and even think about some of the microaggressions that blacks face or implicit racism, it carries on the notion that black struggle is more than just about integration and assimilation. It's also about empowering the community. That is why we still see countless musicians like Kendrick Lamar and athletes like LeBron James that continue to speak up against injustice and are an inspiration to younger generations. Last but not least, I want to give a quick shout out to a Canadian. So let's turn it over to the greatest boxer you haven't heard about, Sam Langford. He had a few nicknames like the Boston Tar Baby, Boston Terror, and Boston Bone Crusher, and ESPN hailed him as the greatest fighter no one knows about. Fighting from the lightweight all the way up to the heavy division, he was about 5 foot 6, 170 pounds. He was notorious for knocking out heavyweights. He fought heavyweights because that was where the attention was. Sam Langford never got a title shot because of the color bar. All champions at the time were white, and they would only defend their title versus other white fighters. It wasn't actually until Tommy Burns broke the color bar, he was a white Canadian boxer that became the world champion, and he declared he would take on all comers, no matter their color or religious beliefs. Ironically enough though, when there was finally a black world champion, they also refused to fight Sam Langford. One of my favorite inspirational stories of Sam Langford was when he had a boxing related injury causing him to go blind in his right eye. For pretty much anyone on earth, that would have been the end of their boxing career. But man, oh man, Langford is not simply anyone. He was a tough cookie and continued to fight for nine years. He even managed to clinch the Mexican heavyweight title, a match in which the handlers literally had to guide him to the ring because his vision was so bad. Imagine that. He couldn't even make it to the ring himself, but was still able to win the fight. That's mind-blowing and speaks volumes to his skill, boxing IQ, and heart. It's like having to be assisted to the field in the Super Bowl, then catching the game-winning pass, 
or having Tom Brady make the winning pass basically blindfolded. Although, although he lost his vision, he was never blind. He knew exactly the man he was and never once lost sight of his dreams. His strength and will and courage is a testament to the resilience of Langford and the black community. Regardless of the injustice or setbacks, it will always rise and fight with pride. Black athletes knew they may be famous, but still face the same discrimination that all the other black people do. And they didn't appreciate being used as a way to counter the struggle coming out of black communities. I think it's great in Canada, February has been de designated as Black History Month, but it's important to not just use this month as a token to read your history books and forget about it for the next year, or thinking back to the recent protests we had over police brutality in Canada and the United States, to try and not forget that message and let that blow over as a trend. There are still injustices in today's day and age, and obviously no matter your ethnicity, color, or religion, we gotta just simply treat everyone with respect. Thank you for tuning into this special. This is Kathleen from the King List Podcast. Lastly, if you haven't already, be sure to follow King of List on Instagram, and you can follow me personally at KingCath.